The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. This week, we continue our conversation with Dr. Raymond Moody, considered to be the father of the 20th century's reawakening of awareness to the near-death experience. His interest in the subject began with his study of early Greek philosophy and Plato's powerful story of the warrior Ur, the classic tale of near-death experiences told in Plato's Republic. Dr. Moody's Ph.D. in philosophy was followed a few years later by an M.D. in psychiatry, and Dr. Moody is best known for his groundbreaking, best-selling 1975 book, Life After Life, in which he coined the term near-death experience. Several books later, and with an abiding conviction that we must keep an open, skeptical mind in order to learn, Dr. Moody's interest in recent years has been to break through the limitations of rational thinking and approach the subject of NDEs in a language some would call nonsense. Raymond, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Wave. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. It's so good to talk to you again. And it was uh, wonderful to visit you in Etna, Maine, for the for the time you were up here. Uh, uh, Raymond, this week's lectionary readings, coincidentally, included this passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh-huh. It said... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts, meaning God, I guess, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in according with, in accordance with God's will. In other words, the Holy Spirit acts as a translator between our language and God's. So it seems we might learn to utilize a different language in communication with the other side? You know, I really think we, we need to, Lee. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of complacency, even in this very frontier uh, um, studies of near-death experiences and, and their relation to them. Biggest of all questions of existence, right, is there a life after death? And this is a question... I mean, I take this question seriously, right? Well, now, if you take it seriously, that means that you really do have to face all of the difficulties. And where I see the complacency is that all of the studies that thus far have been done of the, of this question, uh, um, sort of start off assuming that this question of life after death is um, amenable or answerable by the mind we have now and the logic that we have now. And if you think about it for a minute, well, that just seems obvious, right? That's how you have to approach any question, really, that... um, and so it seems obvious. However, however, the real question or the real difficulty, not just with the question of life after death, but some um, many other big questions of existence, including some contemporary questions in physics, for example, um, uh, 
that is just the plain fact, right? And this yes. was best stated by David Hume, who was one of the founders of the scientific mind, who lived from 1711 to 1776. He explored the notion of inductive logic, like that uh, science uses, and also um, um, formulated difficulties about causation and so on. And so one of the founders of the scientific mind, and and Hume um, said, rightly so, if you think this through as you, as I say the words, you really see it's true. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, he said, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And what he meant there is that the logic that you and I are using right now as we're thinking this through um, was was put into our world by Aristotle, basically, and it's a great system. And questions like life after death, because they involve a sort of difficulty in conceptualization, and really, literally, if you think about it, this seems so trite. But people talk about the literal meaning. Well, oh, ah, what is the literal meaning of mm. there is life after death is there is life after the final irreversible cessation of life, which is a self-contradiction. And in reality, in the real world, that is the difficulty, that there is no clear notion of an afterlife that's clear enough en- enough or, or verifiable in some specific way. And that is the real difficulty. And that, you know, to charge out to, to try to face this biggest question of existence with, um, without looking at the limitations of our own method and of our own mind, that's just folly. So what I say is, I have a, <laughs> I have a, way out of this. And um and this at this point now of course I begin to sound like a crank, you know, uh, way raving lunatic. <laughs> but here but hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. And basically and I said very clearly in my book Life After Life that my I brought the the um framework I brought to this was a background in logic and philosophy of language and Greek philosophy. And that's still the case. And um, what I can say is that I have solved Hume's problem, whereby I have developed a way to augment the mind and the logic that we use so that we can expand our own mind. That sounds sort of trite, but that basically is what this is that we can we can easily see by thinking them through some additional principles of reasoning that apply when we come up with some idea that doesn't make any sense by ordinary literal standards, which we often call nonsense. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And and nonsense is a pejorative word, so people draw back, right? However, however, don't think of the word nonsense. Think of Dr. Seuss, Lewis Carroll, um, Shel Silverstein, if you like him. Um, and uh, think of doo-wop music, and so on. And so, and, and playground rhymes of childhood and jump rope rhymes, I believe you mentioned them. Yes, yes. This yes. Childhood nonsense. And, uh, this is a, a very important part of life. And though it sounds as though now Raymond Moody is raving out of his mind, however, Lee, I am proud to say that I have just heard that my book on nonsense, which has been published in France, not yet in the United States, but the reviewer of a major linguistics mag- uh, journal has mm. reviewed it very positively. So I'm on the right track. And, well, that's uh, terrific. Yeah, I, I, also, you, uh, I understand the CIA invited you down to talk to them about this very they, idea. They did, and this is so funny, and this is nothing hush-hush or, you know, I'm, or James Bondish, I, I knew nothing of this wonderful group of people. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I really, literally knew nothing about intelligence work. I just, James Bond was about my limit of understanding. So anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, they did. I had, I had a good friend who was the, um, chief of, uh, or the director of research, uh, at a major, uh, engineering, um, School, um, and it was also uh, Georgia Tech specifically, and and also right across town at the same time was professor of business at uh, Georgia State. So this is the kind of man we're dealing with, and Roy, right? And yes. he had, uh, yeah, really something. And he had come across my work in nonsense. I had, I had known I've known him for thirty something years when he died, and. So anyway, he like, he had mentioned to me that sometimes these very nice people, well, he, he had been approached by them a number of times. But anyway, yeah, a couple of times, these very, very wonderfully nice people. I mean, you know, the reason I'm insisting all of this is just as a citizen, like, I hate it when I see this news stories about, you know, or just uh, as though these people are some kind of inimical people and... uh I tell you, believe me, this is the nerd brigade, is how I would call it. <laughs> but all of them are just very warm. I guess they have some, I don't know how they pick out their employees for niceness, but somehow they do it. I just never, <laughs> I mean, just really, really nice folks. And they, wow. you know, they had me a couple of times and, um, we're just very interested in this because basically what we have now see is uh, heretofore, in, um, when we look in any science journal or even the science magazine, like you pick up, like Americans, uh, uh, the, the New Scientist or Scientific American or Nature or whatever, just any of them, just look up at them for a few weeks and you'll see, just read closely, and you'll see that it's very common in science or any other learned field 
for people to say about somebody else's point of view, oh, that's unintelligible nonsense, right? This is just a constantly recurrent way of arguing in science journals and, and, and the public arena, too. All right, now, now, up to this point, what it meant was that if you could show that something was unintelligible nonsense, like that it didn't convey any meaning to it, we would just have to stop the inquiry at that point. There wouldn't be any other way we could do. Now, is this realistic? Yes. Uh, Dr. Kaku, I believe, is, 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 is his name, the wonderful man at NYU who is the... Um, physicist who is so often on TV and uh, Discovery Channel, for example, was yes. saying and, and describing um, the dilemma right now in science is that the two most um, powerful explanatory systems or theories ever devised, Einstein's general relativity theory and the quantum theory, um, are when you combine the equations of those two systems, you get unintelligible nonsense. And so in science, generally speaking, nonsense acts as a placeholder. That is, it's something we hold on to, even though it's unintelligible or meaningless in the present condition, in the anticipation that eventually this will all um, sort out and that we, we will figure out a meaningful, intelligible um, um, solution to it, right? right? Now, now, that is exactly where we are in study of near-death experiences, like it or not, because... Um, when you analyze what form, first of all, first of all, if it seems trite to bring up the study of language in connection with the study of such an exciting thing as near-death experiences, which are inspiring to us all, um, then um, you you got to immediately think, but just a minute, the only thing we have to hold on to about somebody's near-death experience is their narrative account of it. Isn't that true? That yes. All, and that also that the most common thing, at least that the thousands of people have told me about their near-death experience is that no matter how articulate they were, they just had no way of putting into into words that it lies beyond the ability their ability to put it into words. And so therefore the language part of this is very important. Now, what I've done in a nutshell is that continuously I've been developing this since the sixties and testing it out on my university students of philosophy and, and professional workshops and uh, entire semester-length courses, I've devised a set of rules and procedures, basically, um, for thinking about things that don't make sense. And in this process, I have cataloged over 70 different types of meaningful, meaningless,
sounds so bizarre and just so impossible, but listen to this. Here are three types right here. Twas brittle again, the slithy toves did Garen gimbal in the wave. That's one type. But now listen to this other distinct type. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. Now listen to this third very distinct type, which operates by an entirely different pattern. Namely, that cannibal you men just ate was the last one in this county. Now, anybody can see, just looking at that, there's three different types. But so there are dozens of other types, each conveying its own particular kinds of effects to the mind. Uh, now, to make a long story short, you can take yourself through a process during which you can actually reformat your mind to think logically about things that don't make sense and therefore to open entirely new ways of investigating, for example, near-death experiences and relationships to life after death. And I know I'm so sorry this sounds so abstract. However, it has the very exciting direct implication well, the uh, Buddhists, uh, the the koans like the, "What is the sound of one hand clapping?" Uh, that that those are designed to put you into a deeper meditative uh, understanding of of uh, reality. That's just... exactly right, Lee. The the koans where then uh, the point of this is to um, repeat the nonsense question to oneself and try to answer it by logical means until you flip yourself over into a Translogical state of mind, and 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 yes. and, yeah. and um, other kinds of nonsense can do this as well. Um, glossolalia in the Christian tradition, which is speaking in unknown tongues, which can be easily characterized by um, linguists as nonsense syllables drawn from the speaker's own language, but nonetheless put together in a mishmash that doesn't make any sense now. Now, you can't. You you don't have to be in an ecstatic state to initiate the glossolalia, because I've done it myself. But mm. by continuing the glossolalia, you can actually induce an ecstatic state of consciousness. This is very dramatic, and not just in Christianity and in, in religions, really, in all over the world. Um, nonsense in various forms has been used as a as a spiritual modality. So, um, one one thing I fear is that people who hear me say, "Yeah, we can show that um, stories of near death experiences are a certain kind of nonsensical travel narrative," is basically what they are. But I want to immediately go on to. Say, but that doesn't mean anything bad. It's it's a wonderful thing because there's nothing bad about nonsense. Nonsense is something that we, in in the pursuit of knowledge, it's something that we use as a sort of to hold on to and to think about things until such time as we can 
formulate it more clearly to get it into an intelligible form that can be put, for example, to a scientific test. There's just absolutely nothing wrong with nonsense. And, right. and the, the harshness of the word is belied by the fact that even though maybe people may not like the word, everybody loves nonsense, right? Everybody's got their favorite, you know, story or joke or just whatever, whatever. So, so it's time we take this seriously as I'm, I'm very proud of the sadness. It's, um, the stories, uh, uh, the NDE stories that people come back with uh, sometimes remind me of the fact that Jesus taught in parables, that he didn't mm-hmm. didn't say things straight out, but, but gave you a story to meditate on. Yes, and Lee, it is so true that we have to have the stories with the near-death experiences, right? I mean, yes. it's, it's Plato mentioned that. He said there's always got to be a storyline because the... The notion of an afterlife is somewhat obscure. You've got to have a storyline to get the thought about it started. But then he went on to point out also that you need some concepts. And um, I find it's kind of like basically what happened was that um, when this came back into the into focus as a topic of, of rational pursuit, uh, the, the afterlife back in the late uh, 19th century. And instead of th- thinking first, well, what method do we apply to this question? They leapt immediately, unthinkingly, to say, oh, let's use science. And there was their flaw. Because mm. in the real world, the question of life after death is not yet a scientific question. However, anybody may want to dispute it or be indignant or that is the reality. And so to take the series, the question seriously means thinking through and facing all the dilemmas. And the dilemma, which many great people have pointed out, is that, is that the sentence, there is life after death, certainly conveys beautiful thoughts to our mind and images and hopes and dreams and all these things, and and that nonetheless that it and all of its seminars, all of its uh, synonyms, really don't convey an intelligible meaning that can be put to a meaningful scientific test. It's the real deal. And so to face that means to get around that by by altering our minds, right? Like to reshaping our minds and expanding our minds to fit the problem. And that's what we can do now. All we got to do is we got to think through about the simple rules that underlie um, how to think about things that are unintelligible. And it's, it's fine. So I, I'm happy to say that as I mentioned a long time ago, I knew that eventually somebody who had been through one of my seminars would have a near-death experience just by chance later, and that I was certain from my, you know, just, unfortunately, this, it can't be explained in a few sentences, but if I could just get to the point that, that somebody who went into a near-death experience, who already had a logic of nonsense or 
on board or knew how to think about unintelligible things would be enabled by that new knowledge to reformulate the typical travel narrative format. I got out of my body, I went through a tunnel into a light, I returned to my body and came back to life. That's a travel narrative. To reformulate it in a way that is closer to an intelligible description, and that has now happened. October 15, 2015, I, I uh, heard from a very distinguished man, a uh, um, uh, um, scientist and distinguished uh, artist as well. And he had been to my seminar uh, on nonsense about eight years before, I think. And he called me to talk about his near-death experience, actually. He's, and he was very, very weak. He had had a terrible, terrible flu. And uh, gangrene set in. He lost his leg. And, uh, mm. But during this time, had several near-death experiences, three, I believe, and was talking about this to me in a very weak voice. And then just suddenly perked up like his voice got clearer, and he said, and Raymond, and Raymond, he said, when I was in that state, he said, I was thinking of the, you know, the nonsense work. Mm -hmm. And he said, quote, he said, and this is so funny because this is, he's a physicist, physics is his thing. And so you think about how apropos it is that this is what the, a physicist said. He said, I realize that you have to take the unintelligibility axis into account, he said, in order to understand how this realm is connected to that realm. So I take that as a, I mean, to me, this is encouraging. I mean, and I, I, with a fuller understanding of the context, what that means is that we can now, we now have a way where we can interact with the near-death experience. You see what? Thus far, it hasn't had anything to be able to touch it. Mm. But now, we can reformat our minds in advance, in such a way as that, when later on we just chance to have a near-death experience, we are able to articulate it in new ways. We can see new connections between the notion of an afterlife and between this state of existence that we're in now. And I know it's all very complicated. And I mean, and this is going to create a ruckus, I think, in what I call the afterlife establishment, right? I mean, this is because this requires a new kind of thinking. Yes. But nonetheless, it happens to be accurate. I mean, <laughs> and the thing is that this, this logic wasn't devised to speak one way or another to the question of life after death. My interest was in logic, is my field. As I said, in life after death, I mean, in life after life, at the very beginning. And that, that's what I bring to this. And, and that what I'm getting at is that my interest was in how you think 
logically about patterns of meaningless, unintelligible language that is nonsense, mm. which turns out to have a very clear logic on its own, which really opens up some entire new ways of investigating not just near-death experiences, but other questions as well. Um, so, so, but one of the implications or one of the corollaries of my work in logic, this is my doctoral dissertation in philosophy actually in 1969, was just a little teeny part of this. I mean, I've been working on this actually since I was a kid, actually. And um, so, um, you know, it was my doctoral dissertation. It was the it was the background information behind why why life after life has held up so well was that I was formulating it with this knowledge of logic in my background, so I knew how to make it so that you know it would be a and so like well like the uh, <clears throat> the bridge that we hope that takes place between quantum and and uh, MC squared as you mentioned earlier uh, the, this may be the the bridge that opens up uh, it is and thank you for that word Lee, because that's exactly the word that I use in my book is that what this is is at least you know people say that they want some sort of bridge between religion and science right I mean it's mm-hmm. almost like a motto or a slogan you hear people tossing around. Well, if that's for real, if people really do have an interest in reconciling religion and science or whatever, and are willing to go through a thought process to arrive at it, you can. And that what this is, is a bridge between uh, the kind of thinking that is used in scientific inquiry on the one hand, and on the other hand, how thinking in religion, for example, about spiritual matters and so on. And in reality, this logic applies equally to both. So yes. it, it does, it reconciles them. Uh, because, well, for various reasons, but it, but it does. Raymond, I'm, I'm afraid we're we're once again we're out of time. Hey, <laughs> we've got hey. to, we've got to do this uh, over. I wish I had th- a three hour show just for you, but we will we'll, we'll continue I'm sorry this. To just rave on and on about this, and I know this sounds crazy to the listeners, but please bear with me because this really does work. If our listeners would like to listen to this or any of our past programs, just go to our website at nderadio.org, and for information about IANS, check their website at IANDS.org and tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.